He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. It tells me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to Buck Sexton with America Now. Thank you so much for being here. 844-900-2825. So the report card is in. Late breaking news here for you on the repeal and replace effort with Obamacare. The CBO, which this is like the Super Bowl for the CBO, getting to score an Obamacare repeal and replace bill. I know it's mind-blowing. This this is the excitement that everyone's been waiting for. Let's see the CBO score. So you're like, CBO? Is that, what is a CBO again? So here's what they say. Here's the, the short version of the much larger conversation and debate that is what's going to happen now with Obamacare. So the CBO sees 24 million people not having insurance if the bill passed as it is right now, the GOP uh, Obamacare replacement. 24 million fewer people would have insurance starting in 2026. And the the 300 and there would be a, a $337 billion deficit cut. So it would spend less money in the uh, long run, but this is by 2026. So looking over the next decade here, and you'd see 24 million more people. And of course, all of the left-wing outlets and much of the mainstream press, the immediate focus is just on 24 million fewer people having insurance. Uh, that's the main headline I see here on CNN, it is the main headline I see here. Oh, yes, of course, on the New York Times. I'm going to take a wild guess. I'm doing this live as I'm on radio with you that if I click on the Washington Post, oh, CBO projects 24 million more uninsured over a decade. So that's that's the line of attack that you're going to see now, that this takes away insurance from people who would get it under Obamacare. This is the Republicans being the party of the rich, being the fat cat party, and being mean to the little guy. How the GOP has put itself in this position at this point, I, I just before I get into the, what's true here and what's not, which is obviously very necessary, but how the GOP is in a situation where with their first major task, here we are. No unity, a lot of consternation among Republicans on this. Uh, Most of the conservatives I know that spend a lot of time thinking about health care issues. I know, exciting stuff talking about on Friday night. Oh, darling, let's not go out to a movie or to the theater. Let's talk about health care. But most people that spend a lot of time analyzing these things uh, have come out and said that this is not, it's not the worst thing ever. There's some tax cuts in it. And uh, certainly there is $337 billion less added to added to the the debt um so or i'm sorry in deficit reduction in deficit reduction over the same period so there's some good stuff to it but it leaves the bait the problem is that it doesn't really deal with the architecture of obamacare which is ultimately that the government needs to come up with these complicated schemes 
that allow people to get more than they pay for when it comes to either through what is effectively a welfare program, which is Medicaid, um, or through taxpayer subsidized programs. And that's going to all that's supposed to be a major part of this Obamacare repeal and replace bill. But if you're getting money from the taxpayer, you're getting a subsidy that's getting that's getting cash. That's getting people to help pay for your health care. One of the interesting things as I was reading through uh, as I was reading through the description, uh, the CBO's description, which it released in just the last hour or so, is you'll have people that are choosing not to buy health insurance. That's a, that's going to be a large portion of those 24 million who are uninsured, uh, who will be uninsured over the next decade. It's people that decide that they are not going to be spending their money on health care. And, you know, there was a piece over the weekend on how there was a family that would consider cutting back uh, and uh, not getting a health care plan, but they could never get rid of their $100 a month cell phone plan with their data and everything else on the smartphone just goes to, as I've been saying, the fundamental problem with healthcare is that both parties have made a promise upon which they can't really deliver, at least not yet. And that is to give everybody access to, because look, the the Democrats make a promise here. The Democrats promise that they'll give more people coverage. This was at the, at the heart of Obamacare at the very start at the beginning, they will give more people coverage at, Better levels, meaning better coverage. So more people will be covered. They will have better health care plans and it will cost less. Uh, That's impossible. That's not going to happen. That's not reality, Uh, especially not when you get the government involved. Where has the government ever been ever been able to do something very well and cheaply for everyone? I I am unfamiliar with this magical government program we're going to talk about. The government's good at taking money, spending money. And sometimes having to destroy things or blow things up. I mean, this is what government can do well. Once you get outside those core missions, government has problems. Government is full of excess and waste and failure. And why would we think it's any different to leave? This is the the, the problem with the repeal uh, and replace bill as it stands right now in the House. Is that it's just trying to do a better job of having the government run health care. It's just trying to have smarter people with more choice involved for the consumer, but the consumer is ultimately not really making the choices. And the government still is trying to come in with all these different uh, subsidies. In this case, the tax credit, they want to keep Medicaid expansion, but they're going to change the way that that's because the political reality, and this is what no one has been prepared for on the right. You get all these people that came into office, all the tea party, the debt, the deficit. Oh, we're tea party people. We're going to take this seriously. 70% of government spending right now isn't even even talked about. Medicare and Social Security, I mean, the the aspects of the budget that are are truly terrifying in terms of what their long-term impacts can be, we're not even talking about that. We are arguing over an already thin slice of the pie, and we can't even make those cuts. We're arguing within the Republican Party over what the long-term financial implications for this country of Obamacare will be, and not even dealing with the fact that this is still we're 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 you know nineteen point whatever trillion dollars in debt and counting. 
it's it's getting worse every year. And at some point we will run out of room. But there's no political will right now to deal with that. Now, uh, there's a part of me that says, okay, look, Trump has to show that his way is better. He has to show a roaring economy with the, and the best way that I think that happens isn't through Obamacare. I think it's through the tax code overall and, and getting rid of the highest tax rates on, on, on uh, businesses, particularly uh, in the industrialized world. I also think the individual rate should be a lot lower. But we were we were told things for years here while Obama was in office and particularly after the passage of Obamacare, there were promises made to the American people about what this would all look like. And the moment that we see these so-called budget wonks telling us, well, don't worry, this will even out here and in 10 years. I don't want to hear 10 years. They can't tell us what's going to happen in 10 years, just like they can't tell me what the climate's going to be in 10 years. I got news for you. They can't tell us the CBO was wrong when it scored Obamacare. The first time around, the CBO is wrong now that it's scoring. What are we going to call it? Trump care, Ryan care, whatever it is. The American Health Care Act. They need to get a cooler name than that. It needs to be like the super all-star black belt health care act or something. Because American Health Care Act is just not just not getting people fired up. It doesn't even it doesn't really tell you anything about it other than you're talking about health care in America. But I digress. CBO is wrong before CBO is wrong now. It's garbage in, garbage out. It's used as a political uh, as a political pawn, really. They use this in order to try to build a narrative. You can see the Democrats have already seized on their talking point, which is that 24 million fewer people will have health care in a decade. Um, and that's all they want to talk about, is that fewer people will have health care. That people may choose... Uh, that people may choose not to buy plans is irrelevant to them. But you see, if it's really going to be free market, and I know I start to sound like the healthcare Grinch here, but I, I, I like everyone's expectations to be in line with reality. If this was really going to be free market, what it would mean is that once they make it possible for that any, whether you have a pre-existing condition or anything else, to get an insurance plan, once they make it possible for you, and if you choose not to get insurance... If you make that choice for yourself or for your family and then somebody gets a serious illness and needs treatment to to stay alive, needs needs treatment uh, urgently, they, of course, have to get that treatment because we're not a heartless and cold society. But it does mean that people are going to declare bankruptcy. There, there have to be if there are no financial consequences for not buying insurance. Why would you buy insurance? If there's no financial consequence to not having insurance on your house, well, why would you buy it? I mean, if your house burns down, you turn around and say, what am I going to do? I'm homeless now. I have nowhere to go. Someone else, please pay for my my house. Especially when you've said that there's no pre-existing conditions. I mean, if you're building it in, that there is an ability to get health care if you want it. And there'll be tax credit subsidies for you. So based on your income level, or you'll be covered by Medicaid, but... If, if you just choose not to have it, there have to be financial consequences. Nobody wants to say that. Nobody wants to talk about that. But it's just, it's just reality. And if you want a system where people have access to uh, high levels of care and uh, excellent care, and everybody has access to that care, well, it's going to be really expensive. Premiums are going to be high. It, we've, all, we've been promised that there'll be a lot of this that's free market and driven by the free market and the same way that we all now carry around more computing power in our pockets than, you know, than, than all of the allied forces would have had put together in, in World War II. I mean, the, the fact that that is our reality now and it is through capitalism and through innovation and technology is great. 
But ultimately, with healthcare, you got people that you have to pay. You've got very expensive treatments that a lot of folks are going to want access to. And it's just not as simple as we're going to tinker around the edges of this thing with Obamacare. We're going to make some changes here and there. We're going to change the way uh, the way the subs or change the way that the individual mandate is currently structured such that now individuals have to choose and they'll get a tax. And this is all going to change, by the way. So what I'm telling you today about, well, this is what this will cost. That's why the CBO number is just uh, really a starting point for negotiation. All of this is. They couldn't even get us back. They wouldn't even take us back. Explain this to me to pre Obamacare American health care system. They won't do that. They could do it. And I don't buy, I'm somebody who also doesn't buy this, oh, we could only do so much through reconciliation. No, not buying it. I think they've lost their nerve. I think they realize that they are competing against the Democrat Party, which is Santa Claus, and the Democrat Party has endless goodies to give to the people that they take from other people, and they hope to just keep that scheme, that Ponzi scheme going, and Republicans have lost their nerve. Not all of them, but a lot of them have. And they don't want to speak honestly to the American people about what this would really mean. You, you, there's no free lunch. And yeah, we can talk about a free market system. And the more free market your health care is, the more access that there will be, the more you'll be in charge of your and your family's health care decisions, which is great. You'll probably be able to negotiate with doctors directly. And there's there's so much here. And you could get a plan that covers what you really need covered. But people are going to have to pay out of pocket for things. I, I keep reading about how, oh, well, I have this plan and it's it's this terrible health care plan because it's only it only kicks in. It, it only really covers things after you spend five or six thousand uh, dollars. Well, depending on your income level, what do people expect to pay for health care? We, we and as I said, we're not even touching the main entitlement programs. We're not we're not touching Medicare. And Trump is getting a lot of heat here because he said that Medicaid wouldn't be cut. And as the CBO scores this, there will be cuts to Medicaid because of the change in how it's paid for. But we can get so lost in the details that we we miss the overall and critical point here, which is that this is a different version, a slightly better version, or you could say a a somewhat better version, of government making way too many decisions about health care, about far too large a welfare state with Medicaid for health care, and... This is the first thing they come out. This is the first thing the Republicans come out the gates with. It's a stumble for sure. I don't know if we could say they've landed flat on their faces here. I'm not sure. This is a really uncomfortable to watch belly flop in the shallow end of the pool. But it's not good. Well, Paul Ryan's obviously got a lot of Ryan splaining to do here. And when you when you're gonna sit down and Listen to what he has to say. I wonder how compelling you'll find any of this. I mean, Ryan is just, uh, this is not the way this should have been rolled out. This is not what, this is not what we've been talking. What was the the repeal bills that the House was voting on in the past? So that was just a joke. That was all for show. It was all for show. Some of us said at the time, so they're just doing this, you know, a great way to to show how stalwart they were in their free market anti-Obamacare positions but didn't actually didn't actually mean anything now we've got this oh, you read through the cbo i mean cbo.gov and i know it's not the most it's not the most riveting reading you'll ever do but you can go through and check it out and they'll 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 tell you or you can read it yourself and see or you can just listen to me i'm telling you now that 
there are some things here that are good, but there's a lot of this where you're saying, why is why is it not more profound, the change that we've been promised here? All right, but let's let's get it. Here's Ryan addressing his critics. Play clip 12. Look, when you're a governing party getting consensus among your wide big tent party, not every everybody doesn't get what they want, but we're getting much better policy here. Everybody doesn't get what they want. So what he means by that is what I would find so interesting. Does that mean that we have to include senators in states that want to make sure that the Medicaid expansion stays in place because, you know, free stuff from the government. People like free stuff that they don't have to pay for. So is th- so they have to get some of what they want. Do we also include who else in this? The uh, different medical providers who are going to feel like they're taken care of here they have fewer taxes on what medical uh, on medical devices and why is this this is so complicated i think it's fair to ask why does it have to be and the answer is there are a lot of different interests here that all want something special for themselves they don't want this just to be open to the market they don't want this to be a- absent these government regulations we don't have this problem. This is a pretty straightforward. You think about it. We don't have this problem with home insurance. People's homes are their most valuable asset. We don't have this problem with car insurance. A lot of people, their second most valuable asset is their car. And if you're renting, it's probably your most valuable asset. We don't have to sit around and, well, well what's the cross-subsidy I get for my GEICO program? You know, Who's going to pay 80% of my GEICO premium? I, or, I don't want to pick on one insurance company or name one. I'm just saying anything. I mean, who's going to pay 80% of it? I only want to pay 20%. I mean, this is, this is nonsense. This is the Republicans not doing what they said they were going to do. This is the Republicans, so far at least, in the GOP chickening out, as I see it. But you've got uh, OMB Director Mick Mulvaney talking about these problems. Let's hear from the OMB chief himself. Play it. We continue to think for a long time that the CBO is scoring the wrong thing. They're scoring uh, Obamacare as it exists today, not tomorrow. Obamacare is this close from completely collapsing. For example, I live in South Carolina. We are down to one provider in that state. There's four or five states that I think are down to one provider. And the CBO is failing to take into consideration what happens to folks in South Carolina when there are no providers, which there may be as soon as next year. So we don't think the CBO is counting correctly that way. But at the same time, we also think they're not counting the right thing. Go back to the original idea of Obamacare was supposed to be that people could afford to go to the doctor. They, they can't. They can afford to have coverage. They can afford to have a little plastic piece of paper that says they have an insurance policy, but they can't afford to go to the doctor. But the president I, said I, I, insurance I, for everybody. I'm, I was on Obamacare when I was in the House. My family's right. deductibles were over $15,000 a year. Other folks who don't make as much money as I do. That was interesting, actually, that he was on Obamacare when he was in the House. Uh, if somebody else is paying for a, a simple visit to the doctor, that's not insurance. That is subsidized health care. This is, this is the fundamental point in all of this debate, all these questions. It is not about insurance. It's about who else is going to pay for the health care of the American people. we got more coming. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. I knew we wouldn't be able to go more than a few days without hearing, of course, about the Trump unsubstantiated wiretap claims. 
Now, I, I need someone to explain this to me, and I, say, I do say that facetiously. How is it that McClatchy and the New York Times and all these other sources can run, uh, all these other news sources, can run stories that say there's a counterintelligence investigation underway, which is a very specific way of describing an investigation. Counterintelligence investigation overwhelmingly is going to mean it uses intelligence sources, sources and methods as collection instead of traditional criminal warrant process. That That's at least the indicator as I see it. And I used to work in the intelligence community, so I've as well as law enforcement. So I have some idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but they could run these stories saying this. And it was all part of the broader narrative. The It was all part of the story, fueling the story about Trump and Russia and these shady, these nefarious, underhanded, uh, sinister ties that Trump has to Russia, which I am still I'm still waiting for one. People say, oh, well, look at oh, look at all the investigation about Hillary and all the and I, I want to grab them when they say this and look them in the eyes and say, you do realize that Hillary lied about the server, lied about having classified on the server, lied about having marked classified on the server. And there was classified on her server, which is a federal crime. So how are we? Com- there is. No federal crime uh, that anyone has even been able to come up with that Donald Trump violated or or any of his senior associates, as we've been told so many times now, who have been under investigation. Uh, If if the a page from Donald Trump's tax returns could somehow find their way, uh, find its way into the media's hands, I would think that that shady phone call where a guy named Boris or a guy named Vladimir or, you know, you name it. You know, a, a lady named Olga or Natasha, you get what I'm saying here is like, Donald, we've got the election covered for you. Don't worry. It's very good. going to be very good for you. We'll hack into Podesta's emails. He's like a clown. The American people will laugh so hard. I mean, this would be an interesting conversation to listen in on, but I don't see this being a reality. Why would they do that? It's see the thing is it's not an effective enough plan to take the risk even if I thought that Donald Trump was somebody who didn't like his country didn't care about his country wasn't a patriot and, and I don't think that even if I did think that this is a dumb plan this isn't going to work you're going to see some of Podesta's emails who really cares there was I don't I have never I haven't met a person yet who thought who who was in the tank for Hillary and I was well you know, those Podesta emails that show that, you know, they think that Hillary, they think that Chelsea is a brat and that there were some debate questions that were fed. And they were what they were. The deck was stacked against Bernie Sanders. If you didn't know the deck was stacked against Bernie Sanders in the Democrat <laughs> Democrat Party, you you had no access to the Internet or a television or a newspaper. It was quite obvious the deck was stacked against Bernie Sanders. Finally, somebody, some justice. It's about time. Yeah, I got I got your back, Bernie. I agree. It was unfair what they did to the burn. And I would have been much better off, I think, for all of America to have had a Democrat socialist running at the top of the Democrat ticket, because at least there's some honesty to that. And keep that in mind as they now pretend to be the defenders of all things great and American in this healthcare debate. And I was Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are up there talking about how they're just so concerned. These are two very well off, in Pelosi's case, fabulously wealthy people that don't spend any time around poor people, but spend a lot of time talking about how much they love poor people, which should always be a red flag, by the way. You know, uh, you know, uh, M- Madam Pelosi is, is not spending 
her hours when she's not on a private jet back and forth to Capitol Hill uh, at the soup kitchen or, or tending to the sick. I can I can promise you that. But she speaks about them like she does. Um, I just poor people. I, I, I the health care bill. You know, and then you have Chuck Schumer up there, who's also you know Chuck Schumer, who's very closely tied into Wall Street. But he's all about the little guy. But he's very closely tied into Wall Street. This health care bill doesn't do it. Leaves the American people. Oh, it's the worst. This is what we're going to hear from all of them, though. Um, but back to, sorry, back to uh, surveillance and Trump and all all the the continuing discussion of this. So the yeah, the news stories out. I know we just I just went down the rabbit hole and pulling myself out right now. You got the news stories out there about the surveillance and what's real and what's not. And finally, I, I, I will say this. I don't think that the Trump team plan was necessarily because this is some 4D chess stuff. And I didn't even know I didn't even heard the term 4D chess until Trump came along in this election. But people that were saying it mockingly the whole time and said he'd never win and he's a joke and this is a clown. This is clownishness and all the rest of it. People that were taking that position, uh, they were wrong. <laughs> so, and they're the ones that are talking to me about 4D chess all the time. So, I, I do feel like now it's maybe used somewhat unironically. They're like, well, maybe Trump, maybe Trump is playing 4D chess. But by forcing the media to hit back after he lashed out on this surveillance issue, it does call into question the entire body of reporting that has been relied on up to this point as the basis for Trump's nefarious, underhanded, insidious Russia, Kremlin, Putin ties. So I guess all of that is we, we can brush all that aside. So then what what do we have? We have Flynn making a totally legitimate, understandable phone call that because of media pressure, he may have felt compelled to uh, shade the truth a bit and or lie to Mike Pence and also taking money from Turkey when you're li- the likely national security advisor in the, in the heat of a campaign. That was unwise. We, th- this was unwise. We can say this. We can be honest about things here and we will be. That was not wise to do, uh, but that's not a Kremlin conspiracy. It's Turkey, a different country, right? So that doesn't add into there at all. And then the meetings between Sessions and Kizilyak, who's like, looks, ain't no party like a Kizilyak party because it has all of the best grain vodka. Um, but yeah, there's nothing there. So while they are going to take some heat now because they're saying, well, Trump has made these unsubstantiated allegations, it also forces us all to come to grips with the reality here, which is that they've been running with this narrative for quite some time of how Trump is doing, is this terrible person, has done these horrible, and they have no proof for it. Nothing. And they say they want an investigation. Okay, fine. Just as long as we all understand the investigation is not going to find any evidence of treason or I don't even know what the charge is supposed to be. They don't know what the charge is supposed to be. Sitting down and having a conversation with a Russian, no matter who you are, is not in and of itself illegal. And now, of course, we find out that members of the Hillary campaign were talking to the Russians, too. But there's not some grand conspiracy that the media has been working feverishly to exaggerate and in some cases even fabricate. So that doesn't get nearly as much attention. But he got spicy doing his thing, addressing the wiretaps during his press conference. His press conferences, by the way, have become destination viewing among the highest rated daytime TV shows or are the press conferences that that Spicy does. So a high five to him. And here he is 
talking about the wiretap evidence or lack thereof. Play clip one. Will the DOJ and or the administration comply with the deadline to supply information? Well, remember, it's the DOJ. I mean, again, it's not the the request was made of the DOJ. And so it's the proper venue to ask that question of is the Department of Justice. But surely the White House, whether we can't, is, or is not. No, evidence. don't you can't because it's interesting in the past, whenever we've had these conversations with another agency, the accusation from the press corps is that we're interfering in something. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say that we're interfering with someone when we talk to them. When we don't talk to them, it's surely you must know. So in this major, hold on, hey, major, major, Cecilia's asking a question. So please, I understand that. I saw the TikTok. I understand it. That doesn't mean you get to jump in. Uh, He has a point there. When they reach out to the agencies and say, can you weigh in on this, then they're Uh, overreaching, misusing position, misusing official government influence or whatever. And when they don't reach out, uh, then all of a sudden we're told that they're trying to let this let this pass. They don't want to know the answers. They don't, you know, you know, Trump can't handle the truth. Something along those lines. Well, it can't be both. And I think that he does well there to point that out. Uh, I, I also think that there is no evidence that they have of any specific wiretap on on Trump Tower, uh, because if they had it, we would know. But there's also no evidence that uh, from a wiretap of Trump or any of his associates that they did anything wrong. And given what we've been told all along, then perhaps some people might start to rethink the Russia Trump conspiracy narrative just a little bit. You'll notice that hasn't really happened. The only people you will see are some on the left who are warning their fellow journalists, you are risking to those who care about credibility. And most of us, I think, at this point, don't believe that journalists in the mainstream have all that much credibility to begin with. But for those who care about their credibility, you are risking it by jumping on this bandwagon that is always suggesting and using all kinds of shady and murky and and uh, language insinuating, uh, creating a perception without providing the evidence of this conspiracy. All of that happening. But then you've got some Trump people out there who are communications folks, don't really know all that much about surveillance or intelligence gathering or any of the above, who are getting into some conversations that are not particularly helpful to the rest of the administration's narrative. Uh, You have Kellyanne Conway talking about spying and microwaves and a lack of evidence for the conspiracy. Let's hear it, clip seven. Do you have any evidence at all that the CIA techniques revealed by WikiLeaks were used against Trump Tower? The president's just happy that the investigation now includes this aspect, that the House Select Intelligence Committees in the House and Senate are now going to have this as part of their very attenuated Russia campaign connection. All I said to the Bergen Record is I was making a comment about the articles from this past week where it is revealed that one can be surveilled in any number of techniques, through microwaves, through cameras, through televisions. I wasn't talking about anything specifically. specifically, do you know whether the Trump Tower was wiretapped? And you answered by citing this report about the CIA techniques revealed by WikiLeaks. Why would you make a suggestion like that without any evidence? I wasn't making a suggestion about Trump Tower. These are two separate things. That's what you were asked about. And I answered him about surveilling generally. But you have no evidence that that kind of surveillance was used against Trump Tower. I have no evidence, but that's why there's an investigation in Congress. That's particularly what investigations are for. See, there's there's also an essential point being made here, and that is that with when the when Trump people defend the administration, they are immediately bombarded with, well, you don't have evidence, you don't have evidence to disprove the theory, 
Uh, meanwhile, for months, we've been hearing about the theory, which is that the Trump team worked with Putin's Russia and you know the, the Russian intelligence, you know the FSB or the SVR or uh, you know, GRU or well, any of the above. GRU, military intelligence, SVR, foreign intelligence, and FSB, domestic intelligence in Russia, uh, worked with some co- combination thereof for in this huge international conspiracy with you know epic implications for American politics. All that, uh, no evidence. They got evidence of a phone call that was leaked, and then and then uh, Pence and Flynn had a falling out over it. Nothing improper going on there, uh, other than the lying to Pence. So now it's you don't have any evidence. So you're y- 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 when you try to push back against a conspiracy for which there's no evidence, you're the problem. Again, what is the standard of proof here, and where do we establish the lines? If if you can make assertions in the press. And, and keep running stories about how we're looking into this, there's more to this, there's more to this, providing no evidence for it. Why can't the other side say, well, what about this? Oh, well, you don't have evidence for that. Yeah, well, neither do you. Hypocrisy is really the left's way of doing business now. That's part of the problem. There's so much hypocrisy that pointing it out is almost like, you know, plopping around in the ocean and saying, you know, hey, it's, it's wet here. Yeah, of course it is. There's there's no surprise. Um, and hypocrisy is the water in which Democrats now swim constantly, especially those in the media. Uh, Got to hit a break. We'll be right back. One more uh, spicy moment here with Sean Spicer. He was at an Apple store uh, in the D.C. area and was confronted by classic uh, agitated uh, liberal and do, who doesn't believe that there's such a thing? They believe in safe spaces on college campuses, but they don't believe in day-to-day life that there's such thing as as a a human being just going about his or her day and and the private space that all of us should be allowed to have, which is that we shouldn't be harassed on the street because you disagree with our politics. We shouldn't uh, be browbeaten in front of our kids because you know you don't like some policy. And this is what liberals do. Conservatives just don't do this. In the same way, in the same frequency, the same proximity to uh, people they don't like. I don't know. It's just you, you hear this stuff and you wonder, when when do we realize that there really is not just an ideological but a cultural divide between Democrats and Republicans in this country? And Democrats think that shrill hysterics should be boundless. There should be no end to when they're able to give a lecture to a stranger on something. Uh, I'm just waiting for the day here in New York City as I walk around the streets. I think I'm I'm not especially on radio because, you know, you don't have that many Democrats in my neighborhood who listen to radio, I would assume. But it'll it'll be a day. A day will come when one of them decides to lecture me on, I don't know, something. And I will not take it particularly uh, uh, passively, I would assume. But Sean Spicer did a good job here. He was in the Apple store. Play clip two. What would be your kind of message to a regular citizen that has an issue? Ask it. I interact with individuals all day long. Uh, 99% of them are pleasant, even with people who may not agree uh, with uh, our philosophy or programs or whatever. Um, But it's a free country, and the beauty of it is that people can act how they want, no matter how that's interpreted. And as long as they stay on the right side of the First Amendment, uh, we're good, Francesca. 
Yeah, he, he's he's being a class act here, and it's uh, the only way that he can handle it. Just like when SNL makes fun of him, the only way to handle it is to just lean into it and and own it and go with it and laugh and not not worry about it, right? You can't let him see you sweat. Uh, but then he, I want to just play for you the audio of what he dealt with, because this is, if a woman had come up to him and said, sir, I just want to ask you a question about, you know, or if she, if he was addressed with some respect, yeah, th- then I, I don't think that it's, it's necessarily over the line. It's a little intrusive. Um, and well, some weeks ago there was a, a athletic, uh, what is it? A fitness club owner or something along those lines in DC who had Ivanka take a class under, under a fake name in her class. And then she wanted to demand or request. Oh, all the liberals are like, oh, she was just requesting a meeting. She's requesting me. She's taking she's taking an aerobics class, right? Just just cool your jets. Just calm down a little bit. Um, but here's what uh, Spicer had to endure. Spicy getting people up in his grill. Play clip two. To work for a I'm three. Sorry. How does it feel? You have a great country. How do you you have you have you helped with the Russia stuff? Are you a criminal as well? Have you committed treason too? Just like the president? Thank you. Have you committed treason too? What do you, what can you tell me about Russia? It's a great country to last you. Yeah, what what can you tell me about Russia, Mr. Secretary? Thank you. Very what can much. you tell me? You know you work for a fascist, right? You work for a fascist. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about destroying our country, Sean? Get her a show on MSNBC, everybody. She's ready for it. Do you feel good about lying to the American people? I, I don't know. If I were Rachel Maddow or if I were uh, Chris Matthews, I'd be a little worried. That that lady's got all the talking points down and pretty much the same intellectual depth, depth as what I see over there on MSNBC. So get her a chair. Give her a big salary. She's ready for it. Hey, everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Welcome back to Buck Sexton with America Now. Phone lines are open, as you just heard, 844-900-2825. Very curious to hear what you think about, uh, about the Republicans right now. Do you think they're losing their nerve, or is this just Obamacare, the repeal and replace, a big, complicated, difficult thing, and who really knows uh, what's going to happen? It's the start of negotiations. Uh, Trump is saying, for example, that this is going to take some time. Uh, let's just play that for a second. Clip six, uh, this is the president himself saying it's going gonna, it's gonna to need a little bit of time. More competition and less regulation will finally bring down the cost of care, and I think it'll bring it down very significantly. Unfortunately, it takes a while to get there because you have to let that marketplace kick in. And it's going to take a little while to get there. Once it does, it's going to be a thing of beauty. I wish it didn't take uh, a year and two years, but that's what's going to happen. Well, he says it'll take some time. Do, who who do you think has messed up, if anyone has messed up so far? I'm, I'm very curious to know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, do you believe that the Republican Congress, Republican uh, majority Congress has too many members who are just happy to continue with parts of Obamacare as is. Uh, That would be what we would have to. That's what I think we need to address here. Or, Or is this just that Trump isn't going to push them hard enough on this? Is he doing a good job? Is it too early to blame anyone? Maybe that's a better position to take. Maybe we have to wait and watch this whole thing play out and give it some more time. 
But right now, with the way that the CBO is scoring this thing, it's a huge Democrat headline across the board here. 24 million fewer insured by 2026. So uh, I want to know what you think about that, to be sure. I mean, you also have the raising of the debt ceiling coming up here. Uh, the, The country is still spending more money than it takes in. And you have the Fed saying they're going to raise interest rates. At some point, we have to grapple with the reality that this is going to be too much, that there'll be impacts on the economy uh, that are uh, impossible to ignore for all of us. Um, At some point, we have to make sure that we are willing to look at this thing for what it is, uh, honestly, and then say to ourselves, okay, well, uh, hold on a second here. If we keep the programs in place that we currently have, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, I know all of you are too, because... It was back in 2012 when Mitt Romney was running against Barack Obama when there was there were still members of the Republican Party who would talk about raising. Oh, yes. Raising the retirement age uh, means testing for uh, for Social Security and uh, uh, Social Security benefits. There was means testing for all of the major benefits programs were at least discussed or thought about. And now it's just we're assuming that this is going to continue as is. And the problem with promoting or or proposing the continued expansion of the, well, of the entitlement state, not to be confused, but not too far off in some ways from the welfare state, because as I'm fond of, of pointing out, or as I find myself pointing out, it's not fond because it's not a necess- not a particularly happy thing. While we pay into Medicare with Medicare taxes, what many Medicare beneficiaries take out is much more than what they pay in over over the uh, years that they will be receiving Medicare. So that is not thought of in the in the way of it being subsidized and it being taxpayers propping us up, but it's just future generations that have that bill. You know, there was a very interesting story I thought last week about how uh, college kids are using money to go on spring break, that student loan money. And we all know that the student loan bubble, and I just want to transition here to another form of massive spending, but also the role that government plays in all this. Here's here's the basics of the story. So students are spending money that they're taking loans. They're taking out loans to have this money. And they're supposed to be just using this to get an education, a college education. And there's a whole discussion to be had as well about whether or not... Uh, it's a good idea to promise everybody in this country that a four-year undergraduate degree, four years of college, is something that we should all be uh, all be chasing, all be doing. That this is worthwhile for everybody. We have a lot of a lot of Americans, and I, I know this because I've gone through the process myself, and I have many friends and have heard the stories. And everyone's told if you want a certain kind of job, if you want a certain kind of lifestyle, you need to have a four-year uh, undergraduate degree. That's what we're told. And now that that so many people have this, we're being told, well, now you need a graduate degree. Now you need to add something else on top of that. And uh, I have to say that that's not necessarily the case. And what you have now is an enormous student loan uh, bubble. Some people say it's not a bubble that's really going to burst, but we'll see. So these kids are, are spending money on spring break. And of course, many of us are supposed to wag a finger at them and say, oh, you know, uh, what are you? What are your kids doing? This is for your college education. These loans are not dischargeable, even under bankruptcy. And there are some programs that allow for student loan forgiveness, but they're very a very small percentage overall of people's student loans will be forgiven by the federal government. Uh, 
But I can I I think the mentality. Well, sure, there, there's a, a degree of this that is is driven by a lack of foresight and a, you know, wanting to party and have fun while you're you know young and in college. And I get all that, and it sounds like fun to me. Uh, and how much how much of your overall student loan is really going to be spent on spring break? I mean, I don't think they're all you know renting a, uh, a beachfront. Uh, you know, beachfront villa in St. Bart's with this money. I, I hope not. That would be very unwise. But I can also understand why in the millennial generation, which is talked about so much by the media and gets, I think, probably too much attention by the media. Everyone's like, oh, what are millennials going to do? Because millennials aren't going to be millennials forever. They're going to pay taxes for a while. They're going to get older. And they're going to realize that re- reality is is not what they necessarily thought it would be. And that's when a lot of them will become conservatives, by the way. That's when a lot of them will start listening to this show. If they're not already, which I hope they certainly are. But I can understand that they view the obligations that they have, the financial obligations they have, are already determined by the state in the sense that we've run up this $20 trillion, 19 point whatever it is, $19.3 or $5 trillion of national debt at this point. And the government is making all these decisions about healthcare about who gets what and when and how much we all pay in taxes and the expansion of Medicaid, the contraction of Medicaid, different ways of paying for Medicaid. They're seeing that politics is determining many of these major spending decisions. And so I think it's understandable for some of them to one say, you know what, who even knows what the economic future is going to be because it's already been taken out of their hands largely because other generations have decided that they are going to have to pay and their children are going to have to pay for what's already being done in this country now. Or we'll reach the point where everyone realizes it's never going to be paid off and then we have all kinds of problems. But also, well, eventually, maybe they'll just decide that the federal government's going to have to relieve a lot of these loans. Because if the government can tell people that they get free health care, if the government can tell people that they get free, you name it, in time, maybe they will tell people that they'll have free. Look, you had Bernie Sanders openly running on free college. Now, I don't think we can pay for it. I think that this would be disastrous, but I can understand some of the mentality here that someone else is going to take care of this. We already accept that now, largely with health care. And this is what Republicans don't want. It's not popular to say this. Nobody wants to be the one that points out that the expectation is not that you can buy health insurance and you'll be insured above a certain level in case you get really sick or you have a serious injury or there's a life and death illness that you face that would bankrupt any per- person you know who's outside of the the 1% or the 1/10th of 1%. But that's what insurance looks like. No, what we want is care. We want $20 or $100 maybe. I mean, that's even expensive for most people that have health health insurance to go to a doctor and be seen and we want copays for our medicine and we we, we want everything to be somehow co- covered in cost by somebody else, whether it's our employer or the government or just you know, the, the, the taxpayer, the government, the taxpayer being really the same thing. Um, on college loans and student loans, uh, people see this and I think they think to themselves, well, in time it'll change. If enough of us have so much debt, just like the, uh, the, the generation above them could say, well, we're just, for people who are over 65, their health, their health insurance or their health expenses will be covered. They'll just be covered by the government. There'll be a government program that will pay for the insurance of people over a certain age. The generation that's run up a trillion dollars of student loans, that's really a couple of generations, they may be saying to themselves, 
well, in time, we'll be in a position where we will be the main voting block and we'll just say that, you know, the government's going to be paying, they'll forgive some portion of it and there'll be a special tax and we'll put it on the generation below. Intergenerational theft is encouraged by the reality of what's happening in this country right now. And one generation putting its debts and obligations on to the next sounds good. Not for your kids or your grandkids, but sounds good for the for the time being. That's exactly what's happening. So while it's easy to uh, look at this spending going on at the spring break student loans, all oh, those crazy kids, I think that they understand that, well, maybe they don't understand, but in the back of their minds, they may be thinking to themselves, I'm never going to be able to pay this off, and there's going to, and many others like me are never going to be able to pay this off, so... It's only a matter of time before there's some shift because you're not going to be able to get free college for all passed without also addressing the trillion dollar student loan bubble that's out there. People are going to want those who are going and voting and who have been paying off these loans for years are going to say, well, hold on a second. Before somebody else gets free college, how about we forgive some portion of my college debt? And these things things may be unthinkable to many people listening right now, but we, as I said, had a major presidential a major candidate of a, of a party running on free college. So this is now what we're pushing back against. The understanding that we have, I think, on education, because there's been such a uh, long-standing and well-documented uh, legacy of failure in the public school system, um, that the reality here is with health care, um, there are promises being made that people haven't been able to see yet what the end consequences of government control of healthcare will be, uh, and they will in time. With school, at least, I think they know that if the federal government, or rather just if government in general, is, is paying for college across the board, that's going to dramatically change what a four-year degree is like. Uh, and I don't think it would be good. I don't think it's going to improve the quality. And already the quality is lacking. you got way too many people who are coming out of school with degrees in you know, it's it's always a fun game to play. Pick the the least useful and uh, funkiest major you possibly can, right? Whether it's I, I'm trying to think of some. I mean, at my school, there was a whole line of study you could take in college called women and gender studies, which was just me- both meaningless and useless. I mean, I took at least one of those classes, meaningless and useless. Sociology in my undergraduate program, meaningless and useless. I could just go down the line. Not a single class really worth taking in some of these disciplines that people get majors in. And they run up considerable debts, 30, 50, even $100,000 of college of student loan debt, which is not dischargeable even in bankruptcy. So everybody is now looking around saying, if, if you can just get a political consensus that somebody else has to pay for your stuff, then you don't have to worry as much. You just need a majority to say that, well, this should be this should receive funding. This should be the taxpayer uh, footing the bill. And that's true, not just of our health care system now, but we're going to see increasingly this is this is the slow and uh, unfortunate slide into democratic socialism, which this country is still it is, it is still happening. Everyone, we don't like to think of it that way. We all oh, we're so free market. And in some ways we are in a lot of ways we're not. 844-900-2825. Do you think the Republicans are losing their nerve? Is it too early to tell? What do you think of the CBO score? Any of the above? That and whatever else you got on your mind. 844-900-2825. Going to hit a break. We'll be right back. 
We've got some calls coming in here. Richard in West Virginia, WWVA. What's up, Richard? What you were saying, you were talking about health care, but then you also said, before you went to the break, whatever else is on your mind. Yeah, sure. Something that I think, what's that? I said, yes, sir. And here's something else I think that was really interesting to me. There's just a delegate here in West Virginia. He's just, they call I guess it's a delegate. He's down there, and he'll call this local show, and almost every time he just says no matter what bills they're voting for, what they care about, the only thing they really care about is getting elected, getting re-elected, getting re-elected. That's all they care about. Anything else is put before them, they don't care. That's one thing I'm just wondering if it's the same way. I don't know that. That's just what he said, and he ought to know because he's down there. Is it the same way nationally? But they don't really care about all this health care or whatever they're dealing with. They just care to get reelected. I think there's, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of that. You know, reelectionitis. I think there's a lot of that for sure. Oh, that's interesting. There, then, what does that say? If they're just there just to be reelected, what does that tell the uh, American people like me? Well, that, this is what I've been saying all along: that there are really <laughs> there are a couple of outcomes from the Trump presidency that I can foresee. And while right now the Democrats are in a terrible position in terms of not having not having power, they don't have the Congress, they don't have the they don't have the Senate, they don't have the presidency, they have state houses and then governorships. You look at the whole list. Democrats are in a weak spot. But uh, if Trump, if Trump and the Republicans having full control of the House and the Senate isn't enough to enact real conservative reform, uh, why even bother? If it's just going to be a slightly different version of Obamacare we live under, if it's just going to be a slightly uh, tweaked tax code that we have to, I mean, especially right now, I think they've missed a huge opportunity, by the way. Right now, from now until April 15th, they should be tax code, tax code, tax code. Because I don't know about everybody else listening, but i got to be pulling together all this stuff and this paperwork so that I can have the privilege of making sure the government knows it's keeping the proper amount of my money, and if I fail in my duty, I'll get uh, you know audited and possibly even thrown in prison. I mean, this is the America we live in now, thanks to the IRS. It's preposterous, and people should be angry about it. You're always being told about, oh, what about the illegal that's separated from his family? It's like, well, you know, what about the guy who's being hounded by the IRS and maybe even face... I know of cases where people have run afoul of the IRS, not doing anything willfully or intentionally wrong. IRS doesn't care. You know, they'll come after you anyway. So I I feel like the Republicans right now have very little momentum, and it's just a shame. It's just a shame, Richard. I'll tell you another thing that interests me. That it seems like it is true. You get people that go down there, they're just regular Joes or Janes or whatever. They get down there. They don't have that much money. They get in there. Then they come out millionaires. Uh, how do they go about making that much money? Uh, become millionaires when they went in there. They were, they were basically thousandaires when they in there, and they come out millionaires. How does that work? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it would be pretty hard. It should be pretty difficult to go into elected office uh, without all that much money, and you come out all of a sudden, and you're just uh, you're just lots of cash. I mean, how, how did Harry Reid become? I think Harry Reid, when he was a, a senator, was living in an apartment in the Ritz Carlton in Northwest D.C. I can tell you that's really expensive. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Harry Reid's Senate salaries covering all that. That's interesting. And Harry Reid, who goes on the Senate floor to say Mitt Romney paid no taxes, which was a total lie, but said it on the Senate floor so no action could be taken against him, and then said, well, Mitt Romney didn't win, did he? And that's how they play the game. Meanwhile, we're sitting around here, 
And, you know, Paul Ryan's trying to get us excited about the different way that instead of direct subsidy, they're doing tax credits for people in the exchange. It's just, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I am disappointed so far, but good to, good to have you on, Richard. Uh, well, we'll have to see how. I, I'm willing to give this some time. And, and, I, and I don't think, by the way, the CBO is just, a, it just is a continuation of the political argument over, over the repeal and replace, over the American Health Care Act versus Obamacare. The CBO estimate, as I told you, it, it has been wrong in the past. It's it's almost certainly wrong now, but it gives you just, it gives you numbers for the for the sake of argument, for the purposes of debate. Uh, it's really the structure, the overall structure of the proposed health care bill that I find. I, I, you know, I was told because this is what politicians were saying. Republicans for years, you know, we're going to have uh, we're going to be able to buy policies across state lines and you're going to be able to see the doctor you want and buy the policy you want. And it's going to. Uh, OK, where's all that? All I see right now is how they're going to mess around with Medicaid and they're going to pull and they're pulling out some taxes. Okay, great. Where's the individual tax rate reform? I know they say that's coming, but this is just right now. It it feels like they're nibbling around the edges and they're not going to the heart of the issue. And that's to me at this point, it, it just seems unacceptable. This they've had years. This is not like they're dealing with a foreign invasion and this is all happening on the fly. They've had years to prepare for this repeal and replace. So far, not so good. We've got more. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Welcome back, Team Buck. Uh, If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can type in Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes, and uh, then you can just subscribe there. It's a fantastic way to listen to the show and uh, listen to all of it whenever you want. And you can also share it with a friend or two. If you like the show, please uh, pass it along. Uh, pass the pass the buck, if you will. And uh, we've got Larry in Ohio on WMAN. What's up, Larry? Hello, uh, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Uh I think I heard today, maybe yesterday, uh, President Trump said that this new uh, health care plan may take a year, possibly two. Now, I'm wondering how in the hell long it took Obama to get Obamacare through, and the Republicans had eight years to come up with a new plan, and now Trump says, I voted for Trump, I'm for him. And now now it comes up, it may be a year or two years. Somebody has dropped the ball somewhere. I I think so. Uh, Look, there, there are some things to keep in mind here. I mean, the CBO said originally that 23 million people would have Obamacare plans uh, by 2017, and in reality, it's only 9 million people, and the rest of it is a Medicaid expansion. So the CBO has been very wrong in the past, um, and so so there's, you know, there, there are problems even with, with the number crunchers on all of this, but I, I agree with you. They're telling us now that this is going to take a long time, and it's so hard to repeal and replace, and I would just wonder, well, is that is it hard because it's so complicated or is it hard because there are members of particularly in the senate there are senators who don't want to make some of the changes to this you know once republicans pass whatever it is they're going to pass 
then the healthcare system and the healthcare problems become their problems. Then it's all of a sudden in the GOP. It has been in the GOP's hands. So we'll have to see. I, I just don't think that the the explanations I'm hearing so far. I mean, I, I have not yet heard from anyone who is a health, a true healthcare policy expert on the right say anything other than this is pretty disappointing. It's pretty bad. They haven't done a good job. And and I agree with you. They've had all this time. The members of Congress have had all this time to come up. They, 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 they told us they've been waiting for this day. I mean, it's like they've They've been on the sidelines, you know, swinging the baseball bat, saying, you know, just, just get me, just get me up there. I want, I want to swing at a pitch. You know, I'm going to do this, and and then we say, okay, it's time. And they go, well, you know, I need to stretch for a while first. I'm, I'm not ready to swing the bat yet. Well, what, what do you mean? I, I, I thought, I thought they were, I thought they were stretching. I thought they were already getting in there. I think it was uh, called midterm elections in uh, eighteen. Yeah, I think there, there are concerns about this because. As much as a lot of Republicans, a lot of Republicans, and I, I thank you for calling in, uh, Larry from Ohio. Thank you, sir. Uh, as much as Republicans like to play the free market, you know, the, the free market idealists who are, are just waiting to unleash the animal spirits of capitalism, and that will make all of this better. I think they realize that the the political reality is something different. The political reality is that they need to keep some of this stuff flowing. They need to keep the goodies going. Because people like getting free, people like free stuff. This is this is a there, there's a reason why all of these European countries have gone down the path of enormous. And by the way, they're not even really socialist states. In, in many cases, the Northern Europeans they're not social. First of all, they're not socialist strictly speaking. Um, you could say they're democratic socialist states, but they're really uh, just more uh, very la- large entitlement states with high taxation. So they've made decisions, and you look at places like Sweden and Denmark and, and others, they've made a decision through the democratic process over time that they're going to have very high rates of taxes, but they're also going to have a high provision of government services, which in a relatively small country with a small population that has a high level of education and, and has a high per capita GDP, that may work for a time. Uh, they actually. What's funny is when you look at the regulations on businesses and uh, there, there's a lot more free market going on in some of those northern European countries than most folks realize, but that's perhaps more detail than we need for our discussion right now. It's just to say that you can see why it become why it happens in in countries that have at least some ideological uh, shared ideological heritage with with our own, and, and then when you look at the UK and it's the national health system, and you look at what's going on with the entitlement state in France and these other Western European countries. People like to think that the government is their friend and will take care of them and will provide services and it works for a time. And then you start to see, well, who is going to pay for all this stuff? If we can just keep voting ourselves stuff, what are the limits to it? And when you start testing those limits, how do you know and how do you change it before it's too late? That's a discussion we need to be having in this country as well. And and we're, we're not really. I mean, when you talk about what's going on with the national debt, that's, it's just not a topic that gets people particularly fired up either. It did for a while. I remember the Tea Party movement. I, I remember the speeches that were given uh, by members of Congress and senators who were part of that Tea Party wave of elected officials even. And they were all saying that this is, this is going to choke the economy. It's going to cripple the economy. It's going to saddle future generations with unpayable debts. I'm not hearing any of that right now. I'm hearing, well, you know, we're going to phase out Medicaid by, or not phase out, pardon me. We're going to lower Medicaid and, and phase out the increase in the Medicaid expen, uh, expenditures 
that Obamacare brought about by 2020, you know, we think maybe that's that's the plan, man. We'll see how the midterms go. I mean, all of that is reversible. If they just plan on hitting some of the switches on the board and not saying we need to shut off this board and start with a new one. I'm kind of thinking of radio terminology here, but you can imagine, you know, if, if we're not if we're not going to do dramatic and drastic change, then all we're really doing is voting for people who are going to try different different versions of statism and healthcare, of state influence and state run healthcare. Uh, now you say, oh, it's not state run. Well, when the state's determining what your plan can and cannot cover, which is already the case, by the way, uh, under the Obamacare reg- regulations. And when also, one of the big objections that you see, by the way, in in the current iteration of the GOP bill has been broken down by the Congressional Budget Office. People are saying, well, seniors under this, and remember, this is just affecting the individual market, mostly. I mean, the taxes obviously don't, but the the plans and the way they're trying to uh, deal with the, the plans, it's Medicaid and the individual market that are affected. And... What's what's fascinating to me is that one of the objections is, well, you know, older people are going to have to pay much higher premiums under this. Okay, well, the alternative to that is that younger, healthier people have to subsidize older people's health care. And if that's what we're going towards, I think a lot of individuals say, well, that's not choice, everybody. When the government is picking some groups and saying, well, you need more health care than this group does. So that group is going to just pay more and support your health care. This is just redistribution of wealth. This is forced subsidy by the hand of government. And I have to say, I, I, this, is not, uh, this is not what we were promised. It's not good. I, I, we spent a lot of time on Obamacare today. I want to move on to some other topics too, but I, it's, it's disappointing because if this is a template for what we're going to see with so many other, uh, with so many other major promises from the Trump campaign and from the Republicans, uh, it's... It's not confidence inspiring. I can say that. I I am uninspired by the repeal and replace so far. Maybe Trump's right. We just need to give it time. I'm willing to give it time. I just am watching this thing closely because I I did not sign on to uh, support this administration as a Republican and vote for it and then support it blindly or just because or because Hillary's so terrible and the Democrats are the worst. That being true or not is irrelevant right now. Um, I plan to look at their health care policies and figure out, well, what, what, is this, what does this really mean? Not the happy smile, not Paul Ryan telling us it'll all work out. It's all just a little too complicated for the normal folks to get. That's, that's m- sort of the vibe you get from Ryan and some of the others, and I don't like that um, because health care does affect all of us. And, and we know. We see our premiums. We pay them. We know what it's like to go into a doctor's office or a hospital and have to deal with all this. This isn't some abstraction. You know, this isn't the uh, carried interest loophole for hedge funds. This is something that matters to all of us. It matters to our families. It matters to our companies. It matters to us as individuals. So it's worth really talking about. And so far, if the whole purpose here is to create an individual market that is so free and so good that you no longer want your employer-sponsored plan, which that is what we are supposed to get to, I do not I do not see how this gets us anywhere near that. This is just a different version of lots of different lots of cross subsidies and government saying you pay this, you pay that, you get this, you get that. And that's uh, this is pretty straightforward. That's not the free market, folks. 
All right, going to hit this break, and we'll be back right after. Stay with me. So there's a new documentary out about Ferguson and Mike Brown, and it makes the allegation, as I see here, that the video footage that we've all seen where Mike Brown is engaged in a uh, strong-arm robbery, although he was never charged for it, but he was never charged for it because he was killed hours later uh, after assaulting a police officer. Um, but he was shown in this strong-arm robbery, and now there's this movie out, and the filmmaker is is claiming that Michael Brown didn't rob the store before he was shot in Ferguson, Missouri, back in 2014. You all remember this, right? Mike Brown, hands up, don't shoot. Mike Brown, Ferguson, all of that. The incessant media coverage of it and the claims that were made uh, in the aftermath of the burning of of buildings or during the burning of buildings in Ferguson, uh, the looting of businesses, that, well, it was mostly peaceful protests. You kept hearing that from members of the media that, that said it without any trace of irony or any sense of, uh, of doubt about the motivations, what was going on there. Oh, it was a mostly, a mostly peaceful protest. Oh, it was a mostly peaceful protest. Okay, well, I, I doubt that that would be how they described a group of uh, tea party, you know, a tea party group where buildings were set on fire. Some of them, though, were just protesting peacefully. But, of course, that never happened. That's a whole other discussion that we could have. Uh, but the convenience store robbery had nothing to do with Officer Darren Wilson and the uh, the exchange between Mike Brown and him, which, we, as we know, there were uh, witnesses, including African-American witnesses from the Ferguson community who came forward to say that uh, Mike Brown attacked this police officer. That They had some exchange of words, and then Mike Brown, who's a very large man, reached into the car and uh, assaulted the officer, and then... The officer got out of the car, and he was charged by Mike Brown, and that's when the gunfire happened. And The hands-up-don't-shoot was a lie. This was from the report that Attorney General Eric Holder's uh, DOJ put together. Of course, they also found some evidence of uh, racial profiling or discriminatory conduct by the police there, so that then became the story, not that we had been lied to for months over hands up don't shoot members of the media to attract attention for themselves would go on tv you know oh look at me hands up don't shoot and there were t-shirts and rallies and protests all of this over mike brown's uh shooting and i I remember here in new york city at a black lives matter protest and remember black lives matter was a movement that largely came from Ferguson or came as a result of what happened in Ferguson and they had they were referring to Mike Brown as as a martyr. So you might ask yourself why is this documentary about Ferguson uh hooked up hooked on this point about whether Mike Brown was engaged in some sort of a a, a marijuana for cigarillos exchange I think is what they're saying here. Yes. Footage shows Brown trading a the New York Times writes that the the footage shows Brown trading a small amount of marijuana for a bag of cigarillos around 1 a.m. on August 9, 2014. The video doesn't clearly show what was exchanged, but shows Brown leaving behind the cigarillos. Uh, Of course, the store owner disputes this. And what's interesting here is that this wouldn't change anything about the fatal shooting incident where it was self-defense by a police officer. That is what the DOJ found. It was. It was a an acceptable 
use of force under the circumstances based on what Mike Brown was doing. And and yet this is still talked about in leftist circles as though it was a grave civil rights injustice. And that, well, well maybe Mike Brown, in this case, forced the officer's hand and, and the shooting happened as a result of his actions. But there are other cases where police get off free. And so we still need to raise awareness about police brutality and all the terrible things that cops do across the country. I mean, you look at the numbers on police brutality, given the uh, millions and millions of police to civilian interactions that happen in any given year. And police brutality is actually a, a, a statistically rare thing, as is uh, overt actual police racism. But you can't, you know, you start to talk about that and people are going to yell at you. I mean, you're going to get in all kinds of trouble. But it brings us back to why would they care here enough to fight over what happened, not even at the incident of the shooting with Officer Wilson and Mike Brown. Remember, that came later. The video that was released beforehand was hours before the shooting showed Mike Brown roughing up this much smaller store owner. And the protesters, of course, resented this because the, you know, the photos of Mike, of Mike Brown that they were trying to win this court battle in the media before any evidence was presented. They were that was the that was the purpose of all of this. Uh, just like with Trayvon Martin, they were showing photos of him when he was 13. Well, when he was when he was fighting with George Zimmerman, he was you know 18 and 175 pounds. Why are you showing? Who's actually 12? I think in the photo that was the most prominently displayed media photo. Mike Brown. I, I've seen so many photos of Mike Brown in a his his I think high school graduation cap and gown. That was the only photo we saw for a while. It's like wow, this 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 is really this is really troubling. This this honor student from Ferguson was just minding his own business, and this police officer, this racist police officer, comes out of nowhere. That's what you're supposed to think. Uh, and yet, then the video comes out, and it shows. Uh, Mr. Brown menacing this store owner. And then later on, the testimony comes out to say that Brown assaulted this officer and the officer was protecting his life. You know, an officer doesn't have the luxury of of thinking, well, maybe this much larger guy is going to uh, choke me out and that'll be it. And he won't take my service weapon and end my life with it. And officers don't have that luxury. They, they, they don't get to make that calculation and they never would and they never should. Uh, so the moment you put an officer in fear for his life and, and recognize that, you know, even even if he's on the ground and somebody else has the upper hand, that can be because of the presence of a lethal weapon there. Never mind the fact that, of course, one good bash in the head and he could be out and then he could just be choked out by the assailant uh, becomes a life and death situation. But why then? Well, what difference does it really make when you look at this video one way or the other? It's because they're trying to rehabilitate the image of Mike Brown to make him a more effective martyr to stir up anger at the Trump administration, the Republican Party, and all those in America across political lines who take the side of the police based on the facts in that encounter and say that Black Lives Matter as a movement has elevated people like Mike Brown that should not be elevated, that are not examples, that are not martyrs, that are not heroes. And the movement hasn't really done anything positive or constructive for the very minority communities that it purports to represent. So that's why they're fighting over this, to make it seem like Mike Brown was really just a nice guy and people who say otherwise are just being mean. We've got more. 
Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. It can be instructive sometimes to look at the immigration debate as it plays out uh, outside of this country. It can be instructive to us as to what we face here in this country in the future should certain trends continue. Uh, This is now an administration where we can at least have a discussion about whether not just there should be a crackdown on illegal immigration. This alone, of course, makes us all think, hold on, it's become controversial to want federal law that is clear and written out for all to see to be enforced. That is a controversial position now. Well, less so now, perhaps, but it has been for many years that illegal aliens under the law should be uh, dealt with based on what is written in the federal criminal code. If members of Congress uh, on the Democrat side were really so outraged by this and it was such a vile and terrible thing, why did they allow why did they allow it to stand for the two years that Barack Obama had both the House and the Senate. If this was a a horrible civil rights violation, if if illegal aliens should just be allowed to have uh, permanent residency and even citizenship, I'm sure Democrats would love to extend them citizenship if they could. Then why didn't the Democrats change it when they had the chance? Reminds me of how, why did Obama take seven and a half years for the absolutely critical and essential transgender bathroom guidance to come down from the federal government why why didn't what about all those other years where transgender students were living under the under the the uh, the heel of an oppressive and totalitarian government that said if you're a boy use the boys room if you're a girl use the girls room took obama seven and a half years one would think that it couldn't have been such a priority or a high priority remember it was just guidance it didn't even pass a law he didn't even write an executive order it was just guidance but illegal aliens and the enforcement of immigration law. These are now controversial propositions. And we have a tremendous amount of legal immigration happening in this country. And it's also become controversial to do what many other countries, including Canada and Australia, do, which is to say that they pick immigrants based upon skills and what they bring to the table. Because being an American, for all of us who are Americans, we should recognize, and I know... If you're listening to the show, you do, but there are some other Americans who I think take it for granted and don't. It's a valuable thing. It is a, it is a thing that has value. Um, and it's not one that we can just extend to everyone everywhere. But the ultimate logic of multiculturalism, which is taught now to your children in school, which is enforced on university campuses, if you're in college and you're listening, it is the, it is the required orthodoxy on college campuses across the country. And it is even now... Uh, the dogma that is preached in many workplaces, including in the federal government. I will never forget being in Iraq and being in a U.S. military base and seeing all these signs of her about how diversity is our strength. Those are the only messaging propaganda signs of that kind that I remembered seeing at all. And I remember thinking to myself, no, I I think uh, patriotism and being the best trained fighting force in history with the morale that comes from knowing that you are part of a just fighting force that is the protection 
uh, that that provides protection for the greatest country in the history. That I, I would think that is is their strength. That that would just be as, as an outsider, although somebody who worked very closely with the military, including in the field in a couple of war zones. I was I remember seeing that, and I wasn't a radio host or working media at the time, but thinking to myself, really. Diversity is our strength. I mean, maybe it is a strength, but is our strength? That's that's number one on the list. Uh, all, all I know is I was just always, you know, I, I was just impressed by Marines all across the board. I, I wasn't impressed by the, I wasn't sitting there counting the diversity of the Marine Corps. I was just impressed by Marines. I, I, the military tends to be the great, um, uh, in many societies, you know, is the place where there is an, an equalizer that exists, where everybody... Well, there's a brotherhood, of course, in arms, but also you have the ability to advance based on merit. And yet the logic of the left and diversity training and multiculturalism had become apparent even there. But if you take multiculturalism to its ultimate ends, there really is no argument in favor of you or I and our citizenship and preferential treatment from the United States government as a result of that versus anyone else anywhere in the world. Because I am no different and no more valuable to my government. I'm not saying in the eyes of God or as a human being, but I, we're now. This is where I have to say the records. We're all equals in the eyes of God, and we're all equal as human beings. And it's funny because in America we don't really we don't have to be told that. It's other countries that don't really believe that. By the way, anybody who wants to lecture you on how racist America is, just as a side note, hasn't spent much time in the rest of the world, including Europe. By the way which is so much more deeply and in many cases overtly racist in day-to-day life than anything you would ever see in this country. Uh, but we are, we're, of course, the ones that are always lectured. You know, we're the ones that are not just, not, I don't just mean by our own media, of course, that's a constant. Um, if there's a, a story on race that the mainstream media can run with, they figure this is great. We get, we get to feel good about ourselves and also get to work to... Uh, exorcise the the evils of the past out of us um, by you know becoming social justice warriors we can get rid of some of our past sins by running countless news stories on how you know Mike Brown was a gentle giant and how could this have, have ever happened to him let's run another photo of him as a you know as a as a high school student in cap and gown and well how could they ever show that video the politics of all this have become very apparent to all of us in recent years and they got worse under the previous administration. And multiculturalism in the end means that we can make no distinctions about whom we let about whom we let in. It's just anybody who wants to come should be allowed to stay from anywhere. And also the gov- you know, the difference between me and a non-citizen is just they haven't declared they want citizenship yet. Because we're it's all the same. We're all the same. There's no unique American culture. There's nothing about Americanness that is different from what one has in other countries. You see, if you're not willing to say that your culture is better than the culture in other countries, why would, and and you're not even willing to say that there's something unique and different about it either, then of course you would just automatically want to allow as many people who want to come to this country in as possible because it makes no difference. Well, in America, because we have over 320 million of our fellow Americans, this is less uh, the the results of a multiculturalist integra- uh, uh, multiculturalist immigration policy 
is not as acutely felt, although it is felt, and we are recognizing that and coming to terms with that, I think, in this country. The Democrats clearly want to bring in as many people from impoverished corners of the developing world, formerly referred to as the third world, as possible, because they know that it will be in the interests of those individuals to uh, vote for the party that provides the most benefits, i.e., that is the biggest proponent of the welfare state. And I don't blame somebody who comes to this country who doesn't speak English and doesn't have uh, the formal education to contribute beyond the earliest uh, the earliest steps on the employment scale, uh, on the employment ladder. I don't blame somebody who comes to this country and then goes on to welfare benefits. It is it is a, a smart thing for them to do. It is a bad thing for a country to bring in people, though, who don't necessarily share the values of the rest of the society and who are going to be dependent right away on the welfare state. And that's, you know, this is where people say, oh, well, you know, look at the numbers and all this. I have looked at the numbers and all this. And there is a, a large percentage of, when you look at illegal immigrants, for example, a large percentage of illegal immigrants uh, in this country are, even though they're not supposed to be accessing any benefits, they do, but even legal immigrants uh, and the children of illegal immigrants end up disproportionately taking benefits uh, from the system and nobody wants to sit around and be Ebenezer Scrooge here. Nobody wants to be the Grinch and say, oh, well, you know, kids shouldn't be getting this for free and people shouldn't be getting that housing benefit for free. It doesn't feel good to say that. It's much more fun to be a Democrat and just pretend to be Santa Claus, but they're doing it with everybody else's money. And we're also running out of that. The, the, the runway is not endless here. We are at, getting close to 20 trillion. It's going to be well over 20 trillion soon. But there's the political change that occurs as well. And this now brings me to the beginning, and I I went off on a bit of a tangent here, but I'll bring it back to what's happening in Europe and uh, the discussions over immigration policies in countries like Sweden, in the UK, and now in the headlines is uh, Geert Wilders, who is a Dutch politician. He's He's from the Netherlands, and he is openly not, he's not just openly critical of mass immigration, which I think many conservatives and even just many people outside of traditional conservatism in this country are critical of mass immigration and concerned about the cultural and political impacts of mass immigration, not just economic. But he's not just a critic of that. He he is openly uh, opposed to Islam. He thinks that Islam as a belief system is uh, in com- in complete opposition to Western civilization and Western values and therefore wants to stop all migration from Islamic countries. Now, this, of course, has become an issue that is much more on the uh, at the forefront of the minds of many Europeans. And if we watch this thinking to ourselves, wow, look at this immigration debate. Uh, we, you know, we think it's fierce in this country. It's even, even more so right now, I think, in Europe in, in many ways, especially after Germany under Merkel let in a million people in one year, almost all of them uh, Muslims from the Muslim world, And now the German people are dealing with these problems. And it was just a moment where you saw highlighted in a way that nobody could ignore, nobody could miss the separation, the difference between those in power making the decisions about immigration and those who have to live with the consequences. And there are echoes of that. There are feelings of similarity across the Atlantic Ocean here about how the elites make policies on immigration and propose certain uh, norms for the enforcement of of immigration without ever having to actually deal with the downside themselves. They get to feel like they're brave and great and fantastic. And they 
They've never spent time in line at an emergency facility where there are illegal immigrants waiting in line in a long line for care that will not only be paid for by the taxpayer, but that's routine care. They're in an emergency room. You know, if if you have a rusty screwdriver stuck in your shoulder, you don't really want to be stuck in line beyond people who are going in for a routine earache. But that is what happens. And I know that was a part of how they sold Obamacare, by the way, was to say that that would stop and that has not stopped. But that's a whole different story. Um, but Wilders takes it. He he takes it to on the dial on the on the uh, anti-immigrant dial. He he takes it to 11. I mean, he's he's not. I want to slow this down. I want to look at this again. I, he's not even I want extreme vetting or we need to build a wall. We need to control this. He's just no on Muslim immigration into the Netherlands. Uh, we have some audio of what he, he had a message for specifically the Turkish government and the Turkish people. Turkey's a 99 percent Muslim country. And there's been some dispute between the Netherlands. At, you know what, actually, I'm going to have to play this on the other side of the break because we're going to run too long otherwise. So stay with me. I'm going to play the. Uh, Geert Wilder's audio. We're going to get deeper into this multicultural immigration fight in, and it's now also we got a U.S. congressman who weighed in on Steve King. So there's a lot of a lot of layers here. We'll get into it more, uh, but let me ask you first before we t- tackle all that: Are you hiring, and do you think you're getting the best possible candidates when you post for a job opening? Well, let me tell you: If you post to just one place, that's not enough to fill. Or to, to fill that slot and to get the best quality candidates possible. If you want the best hire you can possibly find, you need to post on all the job sites at once, all the top ones, and now you can. ZipRecruiter.com allows you to post 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter. You can do that all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide, and you just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use Interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. You find out where ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Right now, my listeners can post on ZipRecruiter.com for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time to try it free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. And Team Buck, we will be right back. elections in two days in the Netherlands, a uh, very pleasant country of about, uh, what is it, 10 million people. So it's it's a whole country that's just a little bit bigger than New York City and maybe about the size of the New York City metro area. And uh, Wilders is not going to be a part of the government in the Netherlands, but his his very obviously... Well, he he is anti. People say you're anti-Islam when you're like, you know, I think that guy screaming Allahu Akbar and was shooting up that shopping mall and and yelling that he was doing it for Al Qaeda. I'm pretty sure that he was a jihadist. Oh, we don't know the FBI or the, you know, the British intelligence service or whatever hasn't told us yet. You're 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 anti-Islam. Not anti-Islam. I just not an idiot. Uh, But. Wilders actually is openly and anti-Islam opposed to Islam. And he his message has become much more, uh, not just much more um, accepted by fellow Dutch, but it is resonating in other corners and and places around Europe. Uh, So let's this is an example. And this is about, by the way, that the Netherlands didn't allow two Turkish ministers, Erdogan's the uh, president of Turkey, and he's an Islamist and a a strong man. He's think of him as like the Turkish Putin uh, with also an Islamist or a political Islamic uh, vibe, 
and and he had two ministers that weren't allowed to come to the Netherlands, and there was there were some protests going on there as a, a result of this. So Turkey and the Netherlands are diplomatically at each other's throats right now, and these are both NATO allied countries. And you got Wilders out there, and this is his message to Turkey, and it's he's not pulling any punches. We can play it. Today, I have a message for the Turks. Your government is fooling you into believing that one day you will become a member of the European Union. Well, forget it. You are no Europeans, and you will never be. An Islamic state like Turkey does not belong to Europe. All the values Europe stands for, freedom, democracy, human rights, are incompatible with Islam. Turkey voted for Erdogan, a dangerous Islamist who raises the flag of Islam. We do not want more, but less Islam. So Turkey, stay away from us. You are not welcome here. Uh, it's pretty, pretty strong stuff, pretty harsh from, from Wilders. What's interesting is that the anti-immigrant position, or really the uh, no immigration position, uh, limiting it drastically from specifically the Muslim world, if not cutting it off entirely, is gaining traction in Europe. And now the knee-jerk multiculturalist uh, contemporary liberal response to this, both in Europe and America, is... That's so racist, it's Islamophobic, it's xenophobic, it's all about phobia, uh, which as I like to point out to people, phobia is an irrational fear, and I believe the word actually comes from phobos, the, which, is the, which is the Greek god of fear, but I might be making that up. I'm probably not, though. It sounds like it's stuck in my brain for some reason. Uh, but they, that's the initial reaction, and yet you've got Angela Merkel, who's in, in Germany, who was the one who opened the doors to a million refugees. Even she says now that you have to share our values. You have to share our values. Well, as anybody who has been a part of the debates over extreme vetting will tell you, it's and just vetting of those who are getting visas and, and trying to specifically trying to immigrate on a permanent basis as well, uh, it's very hard. Uh, to know what someone's ideology may or may not be. And they can hide it, and it becomes difficult. Um, but also, just because somebody claims that they have a specific set of religious beliefs, it doesn't mean that they should then be immune to the criticisms that come along with those beliefs. And it also shouldn't mean that we are incapable of making distinctions, of, of making choices that are about getting those who are ideologically aligned with us to the front of the line when it comes to immigration and understanding that there are some cultures that exist that would have a tougher time assimilating into a Western country than others. This is just a statement of fact and that there are so many. Now, I'm not taking the, the Wilder's position here, but I'm just saying this is now the debate that it opens up. This is a statement of fact that think about it this way. Do you think that an Iraqi who is displaced during the Iraq war into Syria, although now they'd be displaced perhaps into Jordan or Turkey, an Iraqi displaced into Syria will have an easier time assimilating into Syria or or an Iraqi displaced by the war would have an easier time assimilating in uh, Sweden, where they're taking a lot of refugees. Now, that's just one example, but there are clear differences in ideology, never mind also the aspects of culture that are linguistic and 
how one views the role of the state, and you know, then you get into the role of women and minorities and uh, the, the the gay community and how they're treated by uh, and respected or not by immigrants from certain cultures. Uh, we the, the left doesn't. We're not even allowed to talk about it. They want to ignore it. They want to tell us that if you do have any desire to speak about this, it's rooted in racism and bigotry and stupidity and evil. But many Europeans who are not dumb, not bigoted, not stupid, and not evil look at this and they say, hold on a second, Uh, we are running some real risks here, and maybe we want to take a different approach going forward. Doesn't that sound a bit like a conversation we have in this country, too? All right, we've got more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Team Buck, we got a guest on the line. Our friend Tom Rogan has called in. He is the domestic and foreign policy writer at The National Review. He's also a contributor to the McLaughlin Group. Tom, good to have you, my friend. What's up? Good to be with you, Buck. Thanks for having me on. Uh, can, we, can you give us uh, give us your rundown of, of what's going on? The, the Dutch or the Turks, they're having a spat, and Geert Wilders is saying all kinds of stuff. we got elections there in two days. Everyone's looking at this for uh, at, as a possible precursor of more uh, ascendant right-wing policies, at least within governments in Europe. What do you see happening here? Well, I, th- I think uh, Wilders is an ass, and Erdogan is crazy. Uh, I think that's the focal issue. But, but really the failing here, uh, I think, is by the moderate conservative government uh, in the Netherlands in the sense that they have put themselves in a position where by ignoring issues surrounding criminality and uncontrolled immigration uh, and the conformity of uh, the culture in Netherlands is a sort of liberal democracy, you know, many views, but, but adherence to basic social norms. By ignoring that, um, especially in that element of criminality, they have allowed for Wilders' rise. Uh, they have tried to restrain free speech, which is obviously an important issue for us to consider here in terms of hate speech, and that has aggravated people to make them think the only option is Wilders. Um, but also in dealing with Turkey, they've shown weakness in the sense that Erdogan is behaving... Uh, as he does, as a well, as a nutbag, really, but but as someone who thinks he can hold all the reins, and instead of forcefully rebuking him, for example, uh, if I was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, I would have called for an EU uh, ministerial meeting, uh, at least at the level of the sort of security ministers, and ask them to, um, you know, basically uh, joint communicate, saying if you don't conform to basic rules of the Vienna Convention and treatment of diplomats, and um, you can be asked to leave. And if you did that to Turkey, Erdogan would back down. But it's weakness of political leadership over the long term that is now rendering itself in a, in a very visible way in the short term. Now, there were some protests in the Netherlands, as I saw it on uh, uh, various video feeds and social media and elsewhere over the weekend. Right? What, what can you tell me about those? Well, the protests are uh, supporters of President Erdogan in Turkey who are angry that they have not been... Netherlands, um, well, the French actually allowed it, but the, the Netherlands and the Germans banned uh, Turkish protesters from gathering essentially to call for support, to support Erdogan's plans. He wants to get rid of essentially the Turkish constitution or change it so that he can become a like, 
political demigod. Um, and the Netherlands and the Germans said, no, you can't do this because we're worried it will cause sort of, you know, sectarian, you know, rioting. Uh, and by banning it, the Turks, or the Turkish supporters of Erdogan rioted anyway. So that's, that's essentially what's going on. And uh, it's interesting to me, the 5% of the Netherlands population, it's only 5% that is Muslim. Most of their immigrants are, are Turkish, uh, of Turkish origin or uh, Moroccan within that 5% that is, uh, that is Muslim. And, and yet there's been an expansion in the percentage of the Dutch electorate that is at least open to much more restrictive immigration policies. So even if Wilders, as you point out, I, yeah, Wilders, Wilders does take it. He, he goes too far, I think, even for a lot of American conservatives that view immigration as being a necessary um, uh, bulwark to the loss of cultural norms. Rather, you should have bulwarks in place with immigration so you don't have a loss of cultural norms and you don't, you don't overwhelm the assimilation process. Wilders is just, no, I don't want you, you're out. I mean, it's never going to happen. But he has pushed the immigration policies of his country and other European countries, I think, watching this as well, further to the right. That That, that is happening now, and I think it's in large part driven by the refugee surge that happened over the last, what was it, 18 months? Right, exactly. And I think you have to recognize, and again, there are a lot of lessons here for the United States that um, you know, my, myself was, I would say, a conservative a year and a half ago, a year ago, would have said Trump is wrong on immigration and that, you know, uh, the, the, the conservatives should be more on the kind of, you know, amnesty side. But, but in, in the context of seeing the level of public concern here, we obviously saw it by President Trump, it's a wake-up call to say, well, to look at the issues um, and then to say, okay, this is a primary concern for people a lot of people who are, would otherwise... I think we're at the point in the United States, Buck, where we can deal with immigration reform in a way that's lawful, that some people, I would say, should be allowed to stay. Um, but those who have engaged in criminality are chucked out, that those who are now crossing the border uh, are not allowed in, and that, that we, essentially enforcement is much tougher, um, and that a process of rule of law is brought in at the border, but, but also in terms of things like sanctuary cities, right, that, that you cut funding. Because the lesson of Europe is that if you don't do that, People who feel directly affected by it and who are concerned about the degradation of uh, their societal identity in that, again, that liberal democratic way, which the left always pretends it's just a bunch of racists, but no, it's basic norms that can women go to a, a swimming pool without being, being groped, which is much more of an issue than people say it, say it is. And you have to address the issue and you have to address it full frontally. And, 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 and that you're right, basically, that Git Wilders, that he is the dividend of. Uh, years of failure of political responsibility because of a fear of political correctness and also delusion to face up to real and present issues. Yeah, I think that the unwillingness of the liberal uh, the liberal left or, or just the, the liberals across Europe, although it means something different in Europe than it does in America, and now the terminology is getting a bit, a bit muddled, but the, the left in Europe, the, the ruling parties in, in most European countries, uh, have a, an unwillingness, not just an unwillingness to talk about what what the real uh, issues around bringing in refugees, bringing in immigrants, specifically from the Muslim world, are. Uh, you know the the pluses and and the minuses, the the drawbacks that come from it. In the case of Sweden, and and I'm sure some other countries uh, have this as well, but Sweden's the one that comes to mind. You're forbidden from even talking about it. So in a society where open discussion is uh, disallowed, is prohibited. 
I think you're much more likely to see people turn to those who are at the extreme on on any side of an issue and say, well, at least that person's speaking his mind and, and speaking honestly about the subject. The government we know is lying to us. Right. And this is and I, I think there's I, a, an echo of that in this country with immigration, uh, illegal immigration. I'm talking about specifically where we're told illegal immigration makes us richer, safer, better as a country, jobs we won't do. Well, the people who really study this and I'm including, you know, uh, Professor Rojas at Harvard. I mean, there's some others who do the do actually the, the research on this issue and aren't just uh, spewing talking points will say that. There are some benefits. There are also definitely some drawbacks. And if you're going to tell people they can't talk about the drawbacks, they're going to loom larger in their minds than maybe the data would would uh, suggest they should. Absolutely. And it's this idea, really, that you... And again, it comes down to that you know, political um, transparency that, that from the ground up that people discuss issues and debate and generate policies through that. But if you don't do that, then obviously the consequence is that you have an increasing situation in which... The people who are concerned about these issues, which is a large amount of people, more than, for example, I would have you know, considered last year, this time, as I said, and, and many others, I think, would have made that mistake, that, that if you don't provide a realistic appraisal of their concerns, um, they will gravitate towards um, the alternative that at least raises those concerns, and that benefits the fringe, people like Wilders. So I would say, as a rallying call for conservatives who... You know, I myself believe there's a merit to immigration. But let's have a little bit of introspection and, and say, okay, here, here's what the concerns that perhaps we took for granted or, or and even if we disagree, we pay heed to that. But also at the same time, um, you know, reaching out to people and say, look, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not you know, immigration reform uh, or nothing. It's the gravitation of the political center towards very unpleasant places, which I would say Wilders is. He's not a pleasant, he's, he's really quite a nasty little person. Um, this is not a Nigel Farage, for example, who's talked about immigration, and, and that's what the left likes to do. They like to blur the lines. Like Farage, you know, he's a populist, I disagree with him on a lot of things. He's not a racist. Wilders is a racist, I think. Um, so there's a difference between that sort of conservative and right, um, and also the far extreme. And, and Wilders, look, I mean, you look at the opinion polls, that, that a very moderate political culture has gravitated that far is a testament not necessarily to Wilders' success, uh, but to the failure of everyone else and the vacuum that they have left him and the sense of desperation. Um, you know, when, when people fear that their you know, teenage daughter cannot go out onto the streets, and that's what the situation is if you talk to these people across Europe, uh, they are going to react quite strongly. Uh, and I get that. If I had a daughter, I would feel the same way. Tom, I also want to ask you, uh, switching gears here for a moment, about WikiLeaks and the CIA revelations. I know you've written on NashReview.com, you think it'll hurt U.S. alliances. Uh, what, what else are you, are you taking away from everything that's uh, being reported about this so far? Well, I think, I think it's the Russians up to their antics, but of course, you know, we have to wait on, on more on that. Um, but it, would have really, had, it but, seems likely they would have had to have inside help, though. I mean, Mike Morell, former CIA acting director, I believe, has even come out and said that. But that's that's pretty obvious stuff. I mean, it's not... Right. The, the easiest way to get really, really sensitive top-secret stuff is to have somebody with access to it give it to you, right? I mean, to, to get in exactly. there is much more difficult than just getting somebody who's already in there to walk out with it. Exactly, exactly. And and so, you know, a lot of questions. We'll see what happens with that. Obviously, that's a high-priority high investigation for FBI counterintelligence. But look, the real lesson is here, as you know better than anyone former CIA is that you know, we, we have an obsessional approach towards 
And I'll use a personal example, right? That I grew up abroad, British accent, live in Washington, D.C. When I meet, I have a lot of friends in the intelligence community. None of them are sources. You have to segregate that. But when I meet their friends for the first time, they're immediately on edge. Is this guy, you know, a foreign non-official cover? Is he a deep penetrator, Russian, whatever? And I get that. That's the concern that crossed it. And there's this sort of slightly obsessional counterintelligence concern. But the focal issue, which I think we're missing, is that as much as, yes, we have to make people aware of, you know, how many foreign actors are trying to collect, but we also need a process uh, in which we are not allowing, we, we are cutting corners on these background investigations, right? That when you outsource that stuff and you put it in a private company that perhaps is not going to have the checks and balances, it's one of the few things the government probably does well as background investigations if it's applied through the FBI, and you have got to get that right because all it takes is that one person um, to, to, you know, and, and you know as well, Beck, right, that the real cost here at some point is not going to be that we're going to have technical uh, collection capabilities released, but that human sources will be compromised. Right, and, 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 and now there's the possibility. Now there's a possibility of, of of physical harm to individuals who are, are out there in the field, whether it's uh, their sources or or the individuals who work for the U.S. government themselves, depending on on the circumstances. So yeah, that's that's very much a, a concern. I mean, if the the kind of information that we've seen released by WikiLeaks here is of a similar sensitivity in terms of the classification to what you'd see for all, all, all kind, you know, if they can get this out there, then they could have people theoretically on the inside who could get you all kinds of stuff. I mean, this is, exactly. yeah, this is, this is highly protected information. And I'm not, you know, the government, I have to say also this, I understand that they have this policy, but the government's policy about, well, you know, we can't confirm or, or deny at some point when you've got, everyone in the government talking about it and no one saying it's not real. I mean, the public will come to its own perceptions about some of it. But I, I do think that the the hand of WikiLeaks here makes for an interesting domestic political story as well, because WikiLeaks has been getting uh, some play on the right as a truth teller. And I keep saying, look, you know, this is I, I hate the lazy analogy, but it's an easy one. So I'm going to go to it right now. Of, of, you know, we, we fought with Stalin against the Nazis. Right. So sometimes there are bad people who do good things. That is true. That is that is a reality. But WikiLeaks is not a friend to transparency, is not uh, is not trying to make America a, a better place, a freer place. WikiLeaks is a tool of Russia and anti-U.S. interests. That needs to be remembered. <laughs> And exactly, and I would just use, not in a suck-up way, although it might be perceived that way to you, but that, that is, that's, you know, last time we talked, um, we had a discussion, a debate, and we disagreed sort of on Trump's relationship with Russia, and you were saying, we haven't seen anything yet, you know, there's, there's hyperbole. But I also appreciate the fact that you, you have never been, for example, a Sean Hannity, which I would say is the differential, who has now jumped on that bandwagon because he believes it serves... Um, you know, the, the political interest of the right in terms of making Democrats look bad. WikiLeaks is not up, as you say, Stalin, um, you know, a friend in one, one moment can be, um, but the wilderness of mirrors, there are a few friends in the wilderness. You better pay attention to the different reflections. And, and WikiLeaks, I think, has shown uh, its reflections centering very firmly uh, on the Lubyanka uh, time and time again, or at least in adversity to American interests. So, yeah, and there's there's the reporting about. Uh, I mean, what, when someone asks you, Tom, why is WikiLeaks a tool of Russian interest? What are the first three things that come to your mind? Well, that, that it degrades uh, the credibility of the United States as a as, as a state actor, as someone that you know, as a nation that people can trust. Um, 
that it compromises the ability of the United States to, to you know, the United States government to function again in, in intelligence, diplomacy. We saw with the State Department uh, cables. Uh, and, and then also, I think, that I, I do genuinely, and, and obviously this is something, again, this is in this area, but, you know, we have to be careful how much we talk about it. I, I do strongly think, um, you know, that there are people connected uh, to WikiLeaks. Um, I'm thinking sort of Glenn Greenwald here, Assange, obviously, Assange is the best example, um, who perhaps, you know, these are intelligent people, if nothing else. I, I suspect the nature of their amenability to a lot of this stuff and their failure to talk about the Russians, for example. Greenwald is a great, you know, he's very bright. Why hasn't Greenwald talked about Russia? I, I suspect there might be uh, some measure of uncomfortable influence rendered that will come out. I'm very confident of that, in fact, in in, in probably the years ahead. But uh, we, will, we will have you back on when that happens to discuss it, my friend, for sure. And before then, obviously, as well. Tom Rogan is domestic and foreign policy writer at the National Review. Uh, Tom, great to have you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Buck. Have a good night. All right, team. Hold the line. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We've got Bruce in Missouri, who's been patiently waiting. Bruce, we got about a minute, but I wanted to get you in. Okay, Buck, I wanted to talk about something that you mentioned last week. I can't remember what day because it's hard to keep track with your 25 hours a day that you're uh, podcasting now. Uh, long-time podcaster, way back from the weekend. Oh, so, wow. Thank you. Uh, insurance repricing. You talked about how you can't walk into a doctor's office and get the same price as somebody who has various insurance. People don't even realize this exists. I work for a company that around the turn of this millennium, I was out in lovely Orange County, California, working at a company that did insurance repricing. It's so complex that and, and people-heavy, right? It's, it's very people-intensive applying the rules that insurance companies outsource to companies like this. In fact, I found out there was another company that did exactly the same thing not two miles away. I don't know how many of them there are, but literally there is no what it costs for a medical procedure. It's what the insurance company will reimburse you for, and that's what they would do. They get the bill, and then they would mark it up and say, okay, you're on XYZ insurance company, and so they'll reimburse this much, and you have to pay the rest. And then the next thing might be exactly the same procedure, exactly the same hospital or doctor's office, but since you're on ABC Insurance Company, they don't reimburse the same way. That's right, and it's just nonsense. Every, I mean, it, a procedure should cost what it costs, and this is it's, it's ridiculous the way they do it. Bruce, we're at time, man, but thank you for calling in and, and sharing your uh, background on that with us. I appreciate it. Everybody, please go on iTunes, type in Buck Sexton with America Now, click subscribe. So you'll be a podcast subscriber and a part of Team Buck in that way. Until tomorrow night, everybody, Shields High.